Have you ever had the joy of spending Christmas with someone else's family? Uh, I experienced this for the first time um, after getting married to Rosie for my first Christmas after getting married. Uh, we traveled over to Northern Ireland uh, to Rosie's parents' house for Christmas. Now, in preparing for marriage, we knew there would be compromises. Okay, there are definitely some things I'm happy to compromise on, but some things I'm definitely not prepared to compromise on. For example, no shoes indoors. That's, that's just a hygiene thing. Chinese parenting. Of all the times that I want to compromise, Christmas Day is not one of them. How could they not watch the Queen's speech? No Christmas pudding? But soon, I got to come round to their set of traditions. Being able to open presents in the morning. No nephews or nieces running around. And they opened my eyes to how delicious homemade stuffing can be. Despite all my concerns, I actually quite enjoyed uh, their new traditions. Have you ever found yourself uh, moving somewhere with different traditions to yours? Maybe when you came up to university uh, or spending time with the in-laws like me, or maybe you moved to York for a job and there's a different culture. How did you react? Did you conform to these new traditions or did you stick to what you knew? And this is where we pick up the story of the Israelites today. The Israelites find themselves in a place where the local Canaanites have different traditions to them. The Israelites worshipped the Lord, Yahweh, but the Canaanites worshipped a variety of idols, all called Baals. And King Ahab, in the story, has introduced the Israelites to the worship of one Baal in particular, the God of fertility. And so the Israelites are given a choice, and they chose, like me, to embrace these new traditions. Just imagine being one of those Israelites, a people used to living a nomadic lifestyle, out in the desert, and suddenly arriving at this green and pleasant land. It seems so much better than the desert. And imagine just a local person explaining to you, well, this is all because we make sacrifices to this god, Baal, year after year, and year after year, he comes through. We see this new life begin. Year after year, the land becomes fertile. This was something the Israelites' god didn't seem to provide. So the people of Israel had started to turn to worship this idol, Baal, trusting him to provide for them. And this is where we find ourselves in the story. Elijah has had enough. Something has to be done. Let's have a look at the passage. If you've got your Bibles with you, do you want to turn to 1 Kings 18? And that's going to come and be read for us by Nick and Rachel. Verses 1 to 2 and 20 to 39. Okay. 1 Kings 18, 1 and 2. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. 
Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. Uh, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Uh, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal! Answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. He is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping or must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, You shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering of the wood and the wood. Do it again. He said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, are, that you Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I realize that's a pretty long passage, um, so let's just look at it bit by bit. Let's look at what is getting Elijah so outraged and also what he does about it. Be thinking, what relevance could this possibly have to us today, to me? Um, something to bear in mind is that God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. A covenant is a promise, much like a marriage vow is these days. God made a covenant to protect the Israelites, and in return... They promised to love and to serve him. But the people of Israel had time after time broken this covenant. And at this point in their history, living in the land of the Canaanites, their hearts had strayed once again from the Lord to Baal. The Israelites had turned their hearts to Baal to provide for them. They got their security from worshipping him 
so that he would provide fertility for their land. And what Elijah is saying here is that the people of Israel have broken this covenant and turned their hearts away from God. Much like a promiscuous spouse who breaks their marriage vow and turns their heart away from their lover, Elijah is saying the people of Israel have turned away from this covenant. The Israelites were known to be God's chosen people, but their day-to-day life didn't show this at all. They turned their hearts away, and it didn't match up at all. In their everyday lives, they looked to Baal for security, not the Lord. They looked to Baal for their identity, their hope, instead of the Lord. It's as though their God was no longer enough. They're hedging their bets, getting in there with Baal, hedging their bets just in case God didn't come through. And Elijah had had enough. Elijah asked them, how long will you waver between two opinions? The time had come for the Israelites to choose. I just want to zoom out slightly and have a look at this idea of idolatry from our perspective. How does this story relate to us? What does idolatry mean to you? Maybe for you, it just conjures up images like this story from the Bible. Big stone altars like these representing them here, or carved statues, and primitive people just bowing down before them. Maybe you're pretty quick to dismiss these kinds of stories. What simple, primitive people with their idols and their false gods? Surely we've done away with this kind of idolatry. Just consider what the people of Israel had done. God had made a covenant with them, And when they found themselves in a society with different values, they turned their hearts away from him. They looked to other things for a sense of their security, identity, and hope. I don't know about you, but it sounds familiar to me. Like the people of Israel, I've committed my life to God. He's made a covenant with me, and I've said I've given my heart to him. That's how I describe it. But now I find myself living my life in a society with different values. A culture that worships things that aren't God. And I too easily follow suit. Like the Israelites, my heart has strayed from God and often just wants what everyone else does. Often it feels like my life looks just like the lives of everyone around me. Those who've never known what a relationship with God is like. And there are a few things in my life which I think could be examples of this. I wonder if any of these ring true with you. Instead of finding my security in God, my heart has strayed and looks to money for security. So often I chase after it, just like everyone else in the world. When I get a little more money, my standard of living just grows, and once again, I'm left wanting more. Rather than find my identity in God, and in who he says I am, I let those around me dictate who I am. I live off the affirmation of those closest to me, and find my identity in who they say I am. But that's a huge burden to place on the people around you. And rather than find my hope in Christ, I look to my next promotion, my next pay rise for my hope. That's what I'm living for, in the hope that I might get something. I happily stand here on a Sunday and sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. But during the week, I just find myself chasing the next pay rise, the next promotion, to give me the hope to keep on going. Do any of these sound familiar to you? I think if we leave our hearts unchecked, then we can turn to these things like money, relationships, success, 
and turn them into our idols. I think an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that I seek to give me what only God can give. Nowadays, our idolatry doesn't take place in front of carved statues or altars on hilltops. It takes place every day in our gyms, our office blocks, in front of our computer screens, in our homes. It's in these places that our idols demand sacrifices to be appeased. They steal our hearts away from God with the promise of provision and blessings of a better life. I think Elijah would have something to say if he were alive today. I think he'd be calling us out on these kinds of idols. So what happens when Elijah calls the Israelites out on their idolatry? Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? And what's really interesting is the people's response. But the people said nothing. Nothing. How devastating. He's not getting through to them. Elijah needs something else. So what does Elijah do to confront this kind of idolatry? As we saw in the Bible and in Lego earlier on, um, the stage was set. Who would come through for the Israelites? Baal or the Lord? And after these 450 prophets of Baal are finished shouting and dancing and um, slashing themselves, what's the result? What say this Baal the Israelites have relied on for their identity, for their security, for their hope? The illusion is shattered. The idol didn't come through. The fire doesn't light. I love verse 29, probably the most in the whole passage for its devastating simplicity. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. These idols demanded so much. But when push comes to shove, when they're all that's left to be relied upon, there's no response, no answer, no attention. It takes Elijah to call the idols bluff. When there's nothing else to rely on, when push comes to shove, these idols are shown to be what they really are. False, a complete illusion, fake news. But also, it's really easy to point our finger at the Israelites uh, and distance ourselves from them and kind of mumble something about primitive people not knowing any better. But I think we too can put our hope in something that's ultimately not going to come through for us. We can be devastated when we rely on some kind of idol to come through, but it doesn't. Let's just think a bit deeper about what happens when um, push comes to shove and we've relied on something that's not God. Have you made an idol out of love? Putting all the weight of our deepest hopes and longing on one person will surely crush them with our expectations. No one can give your soul all it needs. Take this story of a couple called Jeff and Sue. Um, Jeff was tall and handsome, the kind of mate Sue had always pictured in her mind. He was talkative and she was shy and quiet in public. So she loved how he took the lead in social gatherings and directed the conversation. Sue was also decisive and future-oriented, whereas Jeff tended to live in the present. Their differences seemed to complement each other perfectly. Secretly, Sue was shocked someone this good-looking would fall for her. 
while Jeff, who many women found to be too unambitious, was glad to find a girl who was so adoring. However, there was a twist. Just a year after getting married, Jeff's talkativeness looked to Sue like self-absorption and an inability to listen. His lack of career orientation was a bitter disappointment to her. Meanwhile, Sue's quietness looked to Jeff like a lack of transparency and her soft-spoken shyness masked what he now saw to be a domineering personality. The marriage spiraled down and ended in a speedy divorce. Like Baal being unable to light a fire, maybe that's what it looks like in our time for an idol not to come through. Uh, the author Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Romantic Solution, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1970s. And in it, um, he says the following. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. The lover does not dispense cosmic heroism. He cannot give absolution in his own name. If we raise love from a partner to the status of an idol, when push comes to shove, it won't come through and provide us with everything that we expect. It can't. No one can. What if you've made an idol out of success, career, uh, hard work, or achievement? We can often seek a similar kind of redemption through those things. But what if you are suddenly made redundant? What if your hard work at university doesn't get recognized? You don't get the first that you were hoping for. What if your idol fails you? And there's just one more example I want to give um, before we think about what can we do about these idols. Um, there's a story told by a church leader of two mothers that he'd met. Uh, both mothers had husbands, and both of them had teenage sons. And their sons were both in trouble at school, and both had trouble with the police going bad uh, because their fathers were cold and remote. Their wives could see that their husbands were ruining their sons' lives. So each mother came to this church leader because they were so bitter and angry that they weren't sure that their marriage would survive. Uh, the church leader said, well, you believe in God. You believe God has forgiven you, and he calls you to forgive others. Well, they agreed, and they prayed together. They prayed for them to forgive their husbands. The first mother who, um, in this leader's opinion, um, had probably the worst husband out of the two, um, hadn't been a Christian that long, managed to forgive her husband. She broke through, and the anger dissipated. It was difficult, but the forgiveness helped them to communicate. The marriage got better, and the husband listened to her somewhat and improved somewhat, and the son improved somewhat. Second mother who came to this pastor, had what he thought was probably the better husband of the two, but she just could not forgive. She'd been a Christian a long time, but she was furious, angry. She couldn't stand him. Why is that? Well, this church leader says it was because while the first mother loved her son, the second mother had made her son her meaning in life. 
her identity, her security, her hope. She said, if my son is happy, then I'll know I've done something right. I've not accomplished much in my life, but if he just grows up, I'll feel like I've achieved something. My life will have had some significance. Her mothering was her salvation, and her son was her savior. Ironically, this meant that she couldn't forgive her husband, and their relationship broke down. The son got worse, and by idolizing her son, she closed herself off to forgiving that which threatened her idol. She just couldn't do it. Our idols may save us when times are good. While, for example, your boyfriend or girlfriend is still attentive, your job is still stimulating, your children are still well-behaved, but what if those things let us down? What if they weren't there anymore to give us that security? What idol are we worshipping in the hope that it's going to start a fire in our lives? Do we bow down before money, hoping it's going to give us security? Do we spend our time looking for love from others, hoping it's going to ignite some kind of fire of romantic passion in our lives? Do we bow down to popularity, hoping the adrenaline rush will ignite some kind of fire which burns away our insecurities? The Israelites see their idol exposed before their very eyes. And there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So what does Elijah do next? Maybe we can learn something from how he responds. Um, in verse 30, he said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. That's a great metaphor for what God was doing with the Israelites' hearts. So they prepared the sacrifice and doused the altar in water, and Elijah prays in verse 37, answer me so that these people will know that you are turning their hearts back again. There was hope that the Israelites' hearts, which they'd given to all these false gods, could be turned back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. What does it take for them to be free of this idol? What does it take for them to see just how hollow the idolatry is? It takes a demonstration of God's power and a life-changing encounter with him for their hearts to be turned back to him. You see, the human heart is so hard, so self-absorbed and filled with pride that nothing but God's power is able to cut through and change it. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, it says, God promised that a day was coming when he would give his people the power to follow him, saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Israelites were given this miraculous sign of God's fire falling on the altar. And so too, we have been given Jesus, in whom God showed his miraculous power when he stooped down to earth. He died and rose to life, sent from God to turn our hearts back to him. And when the magnitude of what he did dawns on us, when we rest in that, it's finally possible to rest our hearts in him and in anything else. I'm going to use that to just reflect on later on. Um, We're going to be taking communion together, sharing bread and wine, just to reflect on turning our hearts back to God.
So my prayer for me and for you, uh, for all of us, is just that of Elijah. I pray that we too would find our hearts turned back to God, that we would know that God is turning our hearts back to him again. God is not far away. Um, He's right here with us. But we've turned our hearts. We've found our security and our identity and our hope in other things. Um, One thing to note, I think something that's amazing about turning our hearts back to God is that what happens to those things that we were idolizing before? What happens to things like money or relationships or jobs? Well, it turns money from an idol into just money. It turns a job into just a job. It turns a relationship from which we're trying to derive all meaning in life to a relationship that we can be free to enjoy. Because many of our idols are not actually bad things. They're just good things that we rely on too much. They're good things that we've given our heart wholly to. You see, the greater the idol's good, in fact, hard work or marriage or looking after children, the more likely we are to expect that it will satisfy our deepest desires and hopes. Wouldn't it be amazing if we, as a church, were still able to love deeply, handle money wisely, do well in the world of academia, whatever it is, but not have our hearts given to them as idols? I think that's what it means to be ordinary people, but with extraordinary lives because of our relationship with God. So to respond to this, um, we're just going to pray together, um, and I'm going to finish when we pray um, with a prayer written by someone called George Herbert, um, who was a 17th century priest, um, and it's called an altar prayer. Um, You'll see it's written in the shape of an altar, and hopefully it'll help us just um, apply this passage to our lives today. So let's just spend... um, a minute or so, just to reflect on what this passage is saying to us. Just have a minute or so just to reflect in your heart. What is it that you're seeking your identity, security, your hope from, like the Israelites? What has turned your heart away from God? What is it, what is it you see yourself building an altar to in your everyday life? What is it that's taken your heart away from God? What is it you're hoping is going to ultimately fulfill you, to give you an identity, to give you security? What would be helpful if you just um, close your eyes, if you find that helpful, and just to picture that in your mind as I say this prayer over us. Picture that on this altar. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy hand did frame. No workman's tool has touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone, as nothing but thy power doth cut. Wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name, that if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. O let thy blessed sacrifice be mine, and sanctify this altar to be thine.